Welcome to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast presented by NILA Illinois, the podcast that discusses the policies, regulations, and laws that affect our workplaces, presented primarily from the perspective of employee or plaintiff-side lawyers. We are your hosts, Ahmed Bindra and Max Barrett. We are members of the Board of Directors of NILA Illinois, the Illinois chapter of the National Employment Lawyers Association, a nonprofit collection of attorneys who empower workplace rights. And welcome back to Employee to Lawyer, the employment law podcast. We are your hosts. I'm Max Barrick. And I'm Ahmet Bindra. And thanks to those at home for coming back. And we are lucky to again today be speaking with Tay Sturry, who is the founder of Sturry Legal Services, a law firm in Indianapolis, Indiana. Tay also supervised the publication of the Indiana Treatise on Employment Law, so he's extremely knowledgeable. Tay, thank you for coming back and joining us. Happy to be here, and thanks for having me. Very good. So last time we talked about your employment law practice, um, your the parts of your practice that involve mediation, social security, disability, and I, I encourage everybody listening at home to go back and check it out if you haven't heard it already. Today, we wanted to talk about your career a little bit more holistically. So prior to having your own firm, you, you were enlisted in the military. Correct. Yes. Yeah, I served almost 24 years in the military. I was infantry at first and then migrated to the JAG Enlisted Corps as a military paralegal. And then I retired as a military paralegal as well. well that's awesome. Thank you for your service. What, what was the inertia moment for joining the military? Well, I back in the late 60s, I got an invitation to go visit the Selective Service Office. And so the handwriting was on the wall that I was going to be drafted. So uh, that induced me to go ahead and sign up. And then so while you're enlisted, did you do um, legal work as a paralegal? I did. You know, once I migrated to being military paralegal in the army, they call it an MOS, military occupational specialty, which during my time, it was referred to as legal clerk and then later changed to military paralegal. So, yes, I did, you know, legal work. I drafted uh, court, court martial charges, Article 15 charges, did legal assistance for people, you know, such as a bill of sales, you know, talking to them, talking to soldiers about the Soldiers and Sailors Relief Act, you know, when they would get letters of indebtedness from creditors. Uh, it's uh, the military the legal community is uh, very different than you're going to find in, you know, the, the civilian world. So, and while some of the paralegal skills and knowledge transfer to the civilian sector, that is not always the case. So then what made you decide to go to law school and become an attorney, especially after 24 years in the army? Well, when I retired, uh, just before I retired, I was, you know, shopping around for uh, work for another job. And my wife brought home a job announcement saying, hey, hey, why don't you apply for this job? And it was as a federal investigator with the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. So I looked at it and I thought, well, maybe I should I should apply. So I did. And a couple of days later, I got asked for an interview and I interviewed. And a couple of days after that, they said, yeah, welcome aboard. So I spent almost 14 years with the EEOC 
And it was after that that I decided to go to law school. So I entered law school at the uh, very young age of 51 and graduated at the very young age of 55 and opened up my practice right after that. That's really cool. I think you're our first guest who went to law school in their 50s. What did you do then for the EEO? What type of investigations did you conduct? Well, I started out as a, what they call a federal investigator. And, you know, we would look into, as an investigator, you you would look into the complaints of discrimination and make a recommendation uh, with respect to, you know, whether or not there was unlawful discrimination. And then, of course, if you found that there was, then you go through the conciliation process. And then if conciliation failed, then the EEOC would have to decide whether they were going to take the case on an individual basis. More often than not, if conciliation failed, uh, then you would issue a notice of rights. And after that, I did a a short stint at the call of supervisory investigator. I had uh, 10 investigators under me. And then after that, I transferred to the ADR unit, Alternative Dispute Resolution uh, Unit, and mediated, you know, lots of cases for the EEOC. And then went to law school and opened up my own uh, practice. Did you, in all your years working as an investigator and then as a, in the conciliation division at the EEOC, were there any common mistakes you saw from, I mean, obviously pro se individuals, right, or not attorneys, but things they would do or that attorneys would do that you thought were kind of a, oh, that didn't help the process or you see that a lot and that definitely always derails things? Well, some some attorneys would uh, just uh, file the charges of discrimination willy-nilly without getting, you know, the pertinent facts. And I found that uh, there were a number of attorneys who would just uh, kind of uh, dip their toe in the water, and it was obvious they really didn't know uh, what they were doing. They were trying it, and uh, my suspicion was they were trying it because of the fee-shifting provision in, a, in the statute, and a lot of the attorneys that you know I saw would be uh, in the game for maybe a year or two and then get out. Okay, so it was uh, somewhat even. And then the charging parties themselves, if they came in pro se, they just they just didn't know the, the law or the basis of the discrimination. They just knew that it, it was not fair. And, and so you had to, you know, really interview and go down all sorts of rabbit holes, you know, to get the supporting information and then only to tell them that, sorry, you know, you don't have a valid basis to, you know, file a, you know, a charge. And so I think what I tried to do as an intake person was to give them as much information as possible. And then that way they could articulate the facts to sort of fit, you know, what the uh, legal uh, requirements were. And then lo and behold, you know, you'd find out that, oh, yeah, this is a pretty decent claim, or you'd you know, have to refer them to some other outfit, for example, like OFCCP, you know, that type of thing. What was it like going to law school in your 50s? It was... 
It, it was not easy. I was raising a family as well. My daughter, she was going to school. So, and I was working full time. And, you know, the law school was uh, one of those evening part time programs where it was a four year uh, program. And I was typically working, you know, anywhere from nine to 10 hours a day with, you know, for the commission, because there's far more, you know, work there <laughs> than manpower. So yeah, I was doing that. It was just challenging, but interesting. Yeah, I think given um, my life experience, I was probably able to handle that schedule a little better than, you know, than others. Yeah, I'm assuming just the discipline, the life experience, all of that kind of gave you a unique law school experience that vastly different than mine, I'm sure. Yeah, just one little thing. I, I did not aspire to be, you know, top in my class. Not that I even could could have been, but my goal was just to get the diploma. <laughs> you know. Yeah. So you know, I did the you know necessary work to you know get my diploma. Yeah. So walk us through that a little bit. You're working at the EEO. Was that the primary reason for law school, just to get that diploma and have it kind of on your trophy shelf, or was there another reason why you wanted to? go through law school? Well, the EOC is limited uh, as to how far they can take a case or, you know, what they can do to, you know, help uh, people out. And I sort of acquired a motivation to do some public good, as it were. And, you know, when you look for what your talents uh, and experience are, it just pointed me in the direction of going to law school and helping out, you know, the individuals, you know, the individual uh, plaintiffs, the individual victims of discrimination. Because having worked at the EEOC, you know, you were able to see sort of the underbelly society, you know, just how mean-spirited um, you know, people can treat each other. And that kind of got under my skin. So you know, I thought, well, maybe I can do a little something about that. And so that was a, you know, a motivator. And another motivator was that you know, it, being a lawyer doesn't require a whole lot of uh, physical ability, physical dexterity. You know, so it's a sedentary job and you can do it as long as, you know, your mind holds up. No, that's definitely true. So how was it then to transition from working at the EEO, going to law school and then opening up your own business in your 50s? Well, for me, it was somewhat easy. You know, I I had uh, dealt with a number of, you know, private practicing or attorneys, you know, in private practice. And so I got a feel for, you know, what a practice looks like. And just as soon as I got uh, licensed, I retired from the EEOC and opened up my own shop. And, you know, I I was fortunate in that I already had, uh, let me see, one, I had my military pension. And my EEOC pension, which was very, very modest. So it's not as if, you know, I had to have 
you know, income from, you know, my practice in order just to put food on the table. So I was very fortunate to be able to just open up my practice, you know, without the pressure of, you know, income, needing income. Are there any challenges you found? You know, we it's interesting because a, a lot of our interviews and our guests are folks like yourself in that they are they're solo practitioners within NILA. So we, you know, everybody's got a different view on what the, the pros and cons and challenges and and benefits to, to being a solo can be. But but that said, you know, what are some of the the challenges or benefits to being on your own? Well, some of the benefits are that, you know, you're not answering to a senior partner. In other words, you're able to, you know, strategize and prosecute your your case as, you know, uh, as you think it should be prosecuted. And at least for me, the pressure of, you know, money is is not quite as high. Okay. Whereas if you're in a firm and you have to keep the lights on, you know, there's more pressure in that regard. But for me, you know, I, I'm my own boss, as it were. You know, I don't have the pressure of, you know, having to, you know, take take a paycheck, you know, or get a paycheck every month. And so that gives me some flexibility in terms of being able to help, you know, some clients. Obviously, you know, we get some clients who can't afford, you know, the retainer or that sort of thing, but they have, a, you know, really solid case. And so you have the flexibility of uh, being able to take, you know, those uh, uh, kinds of uh, cases as well. What, so we talked a bit in your last practice about your mediation practice, both from the neutral perspective and also from the practitioner, you know, representing individuals. What what brought you into mediating and as a part of your practice? Was it just your EEOC experience, or was there some other was there some other thought behind it? Uh, it it was because of my EEOC mediation experience, and ironically, I even had a few defense counsel suggest that I you know go into mediation because uh, I, I guess you know I had you know worked with them sufficiently to where they recognized you know my my talent, I guess, as a, as a mediator. It's one of the higher compliments, right? When the other side uh, says, hey, you did a good job. I, I can't tell, actually. Part some did, There are days where I think, oh, that's a really high compliment. And then there are days where I think I must be a pushover because why else are they doing that? <laughs> <laughs> yes. yes, absolutely. You I think guess it, it depends on the day and the person who says it. Yeah, for sure. Do you think the military background or experience helps you with mediations? Uh, I think so, because in the military, uh, you run into people from all different uh, backgrounds, you know, different ethnicities, Chinese, Filipino, actually Russians, you know, people from African, you know, continent, and they all come from different cultures. So one of the things that you learn fairly quickly is to listen and, and try to discern, you know, what those people from different backgrounds are actually trying to keep communicate to you. And of course, you know, listening is, I think, one of the prerequisites to being an effective uh, mediator. Can you talk, uh, so uh, I'm curious, and we're going to go off script a little bit here, but, you know, there are different styles of mediation that, that we've talked about on the show and that I think as practitioners, many of us see, there are the folks who just sort of serve as 
and I don't, I don't say this is an insult to anybody or is, you know, necessarily criticizing the style, but they serve almost as messengers ferrying numbers back and forth and won't always necessarily take a position. There are some, you know, who have the reputation for kind of cracking skulls and really leaning on parties. Maybe that's more federal judges, but I'm sure there are mediators who do it too. You know, and, and there's everything really in between. Do you have a style that you pick that you feel works best for you? Do you tailor how you approach a situation to the needs of that case or the clients that are there? Do you sort of go on gut? What do you, how do you see all of that? What I try to do is, is assess, you know, what the party's real interest is, you know, and one of the things I try to do is figure out very early, well, we, we know that the uh, complainant or the plaintiff is always interested in trying to, you know, get the case settled. That's not necessarily true of, you know, the defendant or the employer. So I try to, you know, read the, read the room as it were uh, for the employer. Are they really interested in, you know, trying to settle the case or are they more interested in evaluating, you know, the plaintiff, the, the plaintiff's lawyer, you know, and use it, they use the mediation as a, you know, free discovery forum. So I try to read the room in that regard. Okay. And I, and if I sense that the employer or the defendant is really not there in good faith, as it were, you know, I, I try to uh, point that out to them saying, hey, look, you know, you're abusing this process if all you're doing is trying to figure out, you know, how weak or how strong, you know, the other side is. Okay. And usually with that sort of admonishment, you know, they, they come around. And, you know, and then, you know, try to at least engage in meaningful settlement now, settlement discussions. Now, that's not always the case. That's not 100 percent true. But as a mediator, if I if I sense that and if I realize that I'm not going to be, be effective in getting that message across, then I'll just declare an impasse, you know, because there's no sense in, you know, wasting uh, uh, anybody's time. Yeah, I think that's a really good philosophy or mentality to take on these things. If you were to go back to the time when you um, left the military or left the army and give yourself advice, both on your EEO career and opening a practice, do you have any piece of advice you'd give to yourself? Yeah, I think the one change I would probably have made is I would have tried to hook up with another established plaintiff's uh, firm, even if uh, he or she was, uh, you know, solo, because the learning curve is very, very steep, as we all know. You know, one of the uh, risks in being self-taught is, you know, if you're taught yourself the wrong way, <laughs> yep. of course, yeah, yep. you know, you know, that, that becomes a problem. So that would be the one thing that I would, looking back, that I would change. Yeah, it's a steep learning curve because you're simultaneously learning the law and you're doing it on your own, how to run a business, how to bring in clients. It's a lot to be stacking on top of each other simultaneously. Yes. Awesome. Well, really, thank you for your time. Really, we've really appreciated talking to you these, these two episodes. So normally at the end of these episodes, we like to do a shout out of the week. And last time we had you on, Tay, you gave a shout out to one of your clients. And it was a really cool story. And after these two episodes, you know, I kind of just want to shout out you. You spent 24 years in the military. You spent 14 years at the EEO. You opened a law practice for the right reasons to help people. And I think you've had 
a really awesome career, a career of service. And we just want to shout you out um, as our shout out of the week. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. Well, thank you to Tastery for all your, your work for, for going into practice. And frankly, what's a tough jurisdiction to represent plaintiffs and doing really good work for people because you could and because you thought it was the right thing. You know, as I think all of us who do this know that there are a lot of ways we could all make a lot more money doing more lucrative and less uh, emotionally and, and mentally taxing areas of law. And you, you chose, you chose to continue the service you'd given the country in a different way. So thank you for all you've done yeah. and continue to do. Yeah. Happy to do so. I'm very proud of it. And, and you should be. Yeah. And thank you to folks at home for listening. Um, please subscribe and share and reach out to Tay. Our podcast is intended to provide general overviews of employment law. The statements and opinions provided in this podcast are just that, the host's opinions. We are not your attorney. This podcast does not create an attorney-client relationship, and it's not intended to provide specific legal advice. For legal questions, please consult with an attorney.